I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. And yes, this is one of those interview episodes, part of this sort of block of interviews I'm doing for a little while, and it's with author J.M. Fry, or Jess, as I like to call her. We met years ago in a Toronto web series kind of meetup thing, and I'm going to let her tell you about her because there's so much, and I, I, I thought I would give her the tough task of crunching it down. But man, is she a neat person and a very knowledgeable person. I hope you enjoy this chat we had. All right, let's go. All right, and here I am with Jess Fry. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, yes. Uh, so <laughs> you've got your tea, I've got my water. Let's do this. Let's do uh, this. Now, as I was saying just before we started, I normally do the author intro kind of thing before the actual interview, but you have done so much, which is a big part of why I wanted to talk to you. Uh, I had trouble crunching it down, so I'm going to give you this chore. <laughs> Please uh, give give the listener a, a brief introduction of, of what your whole deal is. Some of your whole life. Please. One paragraph. Thank you. Um, I am a voice actor. I am an author and I'm a professional smarty pants. That's what I usually say. That's it. That's all you get. No, I, I, I am a voice actor. I started back in university when I was in acting school doing like commercial jingles and phone trees and stuff like that. Now I'm doing animation. And for writing, I, um, I started writing fan fiction in 1991 and wrote my first novel in 2005 when I should have been writing my undergrad thesis. Finished it while I was living overseas teaching in Japan. I uh, got hit by a car when I was living in Japan. So that ended the on camera and on stage acting career, which is why I'm focused on voice acting now. But it offered me the opportunity to write a new novel. And uh, that novel eventually became publishers, one of Publishers Weekly Best Books of the Year in 2011. Um, it's the book that eventually got me an agent and ended up being my publishing debut. Since then, I have published 11 books as both J.M. Fry and Peggy Barnett, which is my erotica pseudonym. And I say professional smarty pants because I got my master's degree in communications culture, and it was sort of like a social anthropology degree, and I wrote about Mary Sue fan fiction. I love it. I love it. And that breakout book was cryptic, yes. right? Yeah. Still available. If Still I'm available, perfect. yes. Um, it's gone through a bit of a transformation. It uh, it was originally published with Dragon Moon Press. And uh, after our relationship ended, I then put it out through my then agent's vanity publishing house. And when that relationship ended, I just actually I just re-released it under my own imprint about a year ago. Yeah. Two years mm. ago. Something like that. What is time? <laughs> 2020 never happened. What is time? Yeah. yeah. 2018 yeah. <laughs> is still just last year. Oh, yeah. God, feels like it. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I really respect your level of experience as an author. I've really enjoyed uh, our past chats about writing and writing life. It's also clear you're exploring avenues in writing, publishing, and self-promotion that I myself have not considered or even been aware of until I saw you <laughs> doing them. So I have some questions sure. on that stuff as well. Uh, please forgive me if this winds up being a little unfocused, but there's just so much I think listeners can learn from you and that I'm interested to hear your thoughts on. First off, I'm going to go to something that uh, you've heard me sort of bug you about before, but I think listeners might be interested to hear. Where Where is your current work in progress? Because I think I've lost track. I remember last time we spoke about it, you were editing a gargantuan, <laughs> to me, it's, manuscript. I've never written anything over 90,000, and it was, wasn't it like the 200,000 When it was mark? finished, it ended up being 215,000 words. I have since got it down to 178. So I've cut basically an entire novel out of my novel, or at least an entire Oliver Brackenbury length novel out of my novel. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a friend who's a middle grade author, and her novels for her middle grade, you know, chat books end up being about 30 or 40,000 words. And I'm like, oh, I cut an entire one of your books out of my book. <laughs> So what has happened with that? And I'll go back to why it was as long as it was. But what where I am with that is I've got it down to 178. And I keep telling myself that's still shorter than Order of the Phoenix. That's still shorter than Gone with the Wind. That's still shorter than um, uh, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um, so it's not that mm. long. You know, if Guy Gavriel Kay and Julie Ternata can write books this long, so can I. Um, 
and uh, I, I've actually started querying it. So it's uh, it's been seen or it's been sent to about ten agents now, and five have rejected mm. it, and they've all said very kind things about it, but. Like one agent who I knew she was reading it that weekend, that weekend, then on Twitter, she went on a bit of a, not a rant, it wasn't a rant, but it was like, all right, children, let's sit down and talk about why word length matters. And I was like, oh, I'm getting a rejection letter on Monday because of the word length. Even though she's never going to say it's the word length, I'm getting a rejection letter on Monday because of the word length. And of course, what happened is I got the rejection letter. Oh, I loved it. It was really great. I really love the stories. It's just not something that I can champion. It's just not for me, which means it was the word length. It's so weird that they would think you wouldn't see that thread, maybe, or not care. Maybe if you she saw was it. think. Maybe she was trying to help me gently learn a lesson or something. It's really interesting because mm. I, I originally kind of wrote a thread back. I didn't link it to her thread, but I was like, okay, children, let's sit down and talk about the fact that this is the fifteenth novel I've written, and or no, sorry, it's the sixteenth or seventeenth. But if I publish it, it'll be like the twelfth book that's published. Let's talk about the fact that I know what I'm doing, and it was a bit arrogant and it was a bit egotistical and after about a month I was like you know maybe this isn't a good look for me and I'm gonna go and just delete most of that thread because I am I'm querying for my third agent right now and I don't want to give them any reason to be like oh this person's a diva or no wonder she's been through two agents already she's crazy I don't want to give them any reason to reject me because of that but I am aware of why word counts exist, but this book wanted to be long. And I mean, for me, the reason that I wrote a 215,000 word book is is in part because my two previous agents said, you write so long, you always write so long, your books are so big. Not a single one of my novels, except for maybe Triptych, and even that one I cut a lot out of to get down there, not one of my novels is less than 100,000 words. I have always been a long writer. I don't know, maybe it's because I grew up in fan fiction where you could just keep going, there's no word count on the internet, but I have always been a long storyteller. But you know what? So's George R. R. Martin. So's Julie Ternita. So's Guy Gavriel Kay. So's J.K. Rowling. So's, you know, I am not the only long writer in the world. And people like big books. Yeah, well, that's something I'm wrestling with because the fantasy I want to write comes from a tradition that's like 120 pages, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, right, I'm seeing a lot of you know fantasy publishers that are saying uh, minimum 100,000. <laughs> so it seems odd that like there'd be this, you know. So there's a reason for that. And I mean, for l- listeners who don't know the reason why books shouldn't or why people hesitate to champion books that are like over 130, maybe 140,000 words, it... it comes down to the economics. It comes down to the money of creating a book that size. How do you physics the spine so the book doesn't fall apart? It's more expensive glue. It's literally more ink and more paper and a bigger cover. It literally costs more to make that book. I had one of my yeah, my my fantasy series, each of those books are about 600 pages. And uh, I had said to the the publisher, can we change the line spacing a little bit because the spacing between the lines looks pretty juvenile. It's got a it's got a lot of space between the 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 lines and it looks like a young reader's book because the words are so big and the line spacing so big. And she was like, "Yeah, okay, let me fiddle with that." And it cut 200 pages out of the book and it caught cut 5 bucks off the cost of producing that book. Um so if you have like a 600 page book, like 215,000 words would be, sorry, six page, I meant 600, but it'd be like an 800 page book. If you have an 800 page book to make any profit on that book, you have to sell that book for like $35. Who's going to buy a $35 paperback? The answer is nobody. (laughs) So the economics of creating an 800 page book that you're selling for $35 is a no-go for a publisher because publishers are businesses. Unless you're George R. R. Martin, in which case people will murder their grandmother to have an 800-page book. And they will spend $50 for it because it's George R. R. Martin. So that's sort of the economics about, you know, why you shouldn't write 215,000-word books. But 
I chose to do it because I have always written long books. And I wanted to write a book for the first time in pretty much like a decade. This is the first book that I have written since Triptych that wasn't pre-approved by an agent or wasn't pitched to someone first. It was just like, I'm just gonna sit down and I'm gonna write the story I wanna tell. For the first time in over a decade, I'm telling myself a story, specifically to tell myself the story. I'm not gonna worry about the economics of it. I'm not gonna worry about the saleability of it. I'm not gonna worry that the content is gonna make it hard to sell in mainland China, which is a thing that has been said to me. I'm not gonna care about all of that. I'm just gonna write a story for me for the first time in a decade. And I'm gonna write it till the story's done. And if I end up overwriting the story, pff, that's what editing's for. And that impulse came from, you know, in, in late 2019, um, my family lost our matriarch, my grandmother, my mother's mother. And that ended up being a lot more devastating to me than I thought it would be. And then I lost my job. And then I lost a couple of other things. And then some people got sick and someone else died. And I was just living in this pit of grief. And um, my agent at the time had basically, I had pitched her, I, I had given her a novel and she sort of like lackluster shopped it around and just was like, I don't really love this. Can we just shelve it? And I was like, I have spent two years writing this book for you. You approved this pitch in 2017. It's now 2019 and you don't care anymore. What, what am I even doing with you? Like, you know, it's that phrase, if your agent isn't leading you down the path in your career, then they're standing in your way. And then I sent her a bunch of other pitches and she's like, nah, I'm not really, I don't, your stuff's so weird, Jess. You write so long. Everything's left to center. I don't understand, you know? And I was like, okay, cool. So this isn't working. And around the same time, I got a new voice acting agent. And it was like, oh, this is what my relationship with my writing agent should be like. Right, right. I remember this is what having a, an agent who believes in you feels like. Okay, I get this. So I parted ways with that agent. And I, so I was just like depressed. I felt like a loser. I felt like I'd ruined my career. And I just thought, screw it. I'm going to write to remember why I like writing. I'm going to write whatever I want. I'm going to write the, the book of my heart now a decade later, and it's going to be as long as it needs to be. Yeah, so that was a very long and convoluted way of saying my, my work in progress, it's called nine tenths at this point from the idiom possession is nine tenths of the law. And it is on query with some agents and I'm going to give it about a year. And if, um, if nobody comes back, and says that they want it, then I have a couple publishers who've expressed interest and I can place it with them without an agent, but I would rather have an agent. And if they read it and they're like, oh my God, no, the economics of this book is no way. I'll probably self-publish it and then, I don't know, take a break from writing for a while. Huh. All right, sorry, I, you tapped asked across many questions mm. I was going to ask you, so wonderful, well, we thank can you. Well, uh, we can go back to any of them if you'd like. Oh yeah, no, no, it's all good. That was a, a, a wonderfully, that was, this is why I wanted to talk to you because I know you give great answers to questions. So don't worry, that was amazing. Thank you very much. And actually it brings me to two points uh, I was going to cover elsewhere. Well, I'll go with this one. Uh, you know, I noticed that as, you, as you've covered now, uh, as you've been querying uh, for that novel, you've been very transparent about the responses you've received so far, including the rejections. And I think most people would find doing that deeply anxiety inducing. What made you choose to be this uh, transparent about your process? I've always been really transparent about my process. From the beginning, I've been really transparent. And I think, again, I think that goes back to being part of the fan fiction community. I think, you know, being on GeoCities and then LiveJournal and then Yahoo Groups and now AO3, we talk about our processes as writers very frankly in the fan fiction community. We talk about editing, we talk about Brit picking, we talk about flaming and comments and concrete, and we give shout outs to our beta readers and all that stuff. So when I switched to original fiction, I just kept speaking about things like that. And I, I mean, obviously I'm not gonna like give away all the numbers of you know, exactly how mm. much money I've made ever, but because that is private. But I'm perfectly happy to talk about things like, oh yeah, I got rejected and it's because of the word count. Because that has, I suppose it's personal, but that has nothing to do with me, right? Like, Yeah, it's not actually a personal uh, insult or, no. uh, you know, this is your life up to this point has been judged. Yeah, it has. <laughs> as it, it can feel. An agent not liking my book has literally nothing to do with me. Maybe I, I, I know for a lot of people, like an agent not liking their book 
or an editor not liking their book or an, uh, a reviewer giving it one star feels like a slap in the face or a punch in the gut. But I've been an actor since I was four years old. I'm really used to rejection. I'm really used to walking into an audition room and someone going, her nose is too big, pass, before I've even opened my mouth, <laughs> which also has happened. I'm really used to understanding that the choices that someone else makes for the good of their own business or the good of their own film or the good of their own play has nothing to do with me personally. They have a problem. I'm trying to solve that problem. I'm not the right solution. They have to move on and find somebody who is. And it's the same with agents declining books. An agent declining my book because they don't like the queer romance has nothing to do with me. So I'm perfectly happy to to tell people why. Yeah, well, I love it, right? I mean, this is one of the 25 reasons I wanted to have you on here and talk with you is because you have what seems to me just a stunningly healthy relationship with this kind of almost like low-level radiation on social media, the pressure to appeal, uh, sorry, appear perfectly happy and successful at all times, which I mean, since like, you know, certainly at least since Instagram, we've all been feeling, mm -hmm. I think, no matter whether you write or otherwise. But I think that authors can feel it, and certainly just people in the arts in general, can feel it a little more because your projected self-image can be linked to potential employment right or collaboration yeah. if you're you know miserable online or whatever then people might well, be like, I and know. i think i really carefully curate my feeds especially instagram and, and twitter knowing that i'm gonna get googled if someone likes my pitch they're gonna read my pages if they like my pages they're gonna figure out my social media profile and they're gonna go look at my profile and if i'm going eh, this person's a cuss word that person's this this person's this if i'm crazy on my social media if i'm consuming horse dewormer um publicly <laughs> on my social media then i've made myself an unappealing option so i do i'm very careful about what i put on my social media but i think demonstrating a healthy relationship to your artistic work because maybe it's just me but if i was an agent and i was looking at somebody's twitter feed and all they talked about is this book is my baby and it's my dream and it's my soul i'd be like oh i'm a little hesitant to take this person on because mm. how are they going to take the editing letter what if we get yeah. a dramatic adaptation deal and they want to change the ethnicity of a main character make them bipoc or something how is this author going to handle this little baby that they've been dreaming about for decades and it's perfect you know like are they going to go full-on Anne rice and like have a freak out in an amazon review about how they're too important and too special to ever be edited again i would i would be worried <laughs> about that and i think maybe yeah maybe it's a bit maybe it's a bit performative of me to be like so this is why i got rejected cool well, I think there's, you know, I think of something I learned, uh, you know, my education revolving around film where like, and I think most people know this anyway, even in documentaries, even reality shows, especially in reality oh, shows, reality there's shows always editing so going scripted. on. You can't, yeah, like everything's, everything's edited, right? Including your, your online persona. But I think that there, there is a sweet spot you can find where you're being honest with people without having to share your bra size or your fine or your bank account. Yeah. And, and I, I feel like you've really done that. I think people can, you know, learn a bit by looking at how your social media works. I also think people can learn a lot from your author website, which uh, for those listening, jmfry.net, that's jmfrey.net. I'll link to it in the show notes. Honestly, it is definitely one of the best ones I've been, I've seen. I've, oh, I've really been, been looking at a lot of author websites recently and thinking a lot about like how my own presence is online and how I want to manage it. And I just think there's so much people can learn uh, from yours. I, it offers everything I could possibly be looking for, whether I'm just a reader or editor, you know, publisher, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, looking for it's easy to navigate and read. Uh, so what do you like? Because obviously you look at other authors. Yeah. Uh, we all do. What do you like to see in an author's online presence? And conversely, what are you kind of put off by when you see you know, their, their site or maybe their social media? I like to see the most important, the two most important things as an actor and as, a, as an author is that I should know how to give you money immediately and I should know how to contact you immediately. And this goes for artists too. So if you're an artist and you have like a portfolio and you want to get hired for like graphic novel work and stuff like this, give me immediately, how do I give you money and how do I contact? Because the only reason anybody is coming to your website really is to buy your book or to send you an email to ask you to blurb something or appear somewhere, or do a podcast or do a convention or because they want to contact your agent because they want to inquire about film rights or something like that. And if you don't put that right there, here's how you can give me money. 
here's how you can contact me or my representation. What is the point of your website? There's no point in having a website. And for me, I don't operate a bookstore off my website. I am a writer, I am not a bookseller. So what I do is I list every book that I have, and then I pick like the 10 most common links. So like Book Depository, Amazon, Kindle, Kobo, Nook, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, Books A Million, uh, Shop Indie, just all these places where it's like, okay, how do you like to shop for books? You like Smashwords? Great, here's the link. You want to read a sample of my book before you buy it? Great, go to Wattpad. Every book I have has like two or three chapters up on Wattpad, so you can just just go to Wattpad and read it. And I do that instead of putting it on hosting it on my own website because um, you can subscribe to me on Wattpad. So the next time I release a book, I'll put up another three piece chapters or whatever, and you get notified immediately. So whatever readership I have, if they follow me on Wattpad, they will immediately get notified that I'm that I've put up a new sample. Or in the case of um, the book I'm releasing right now, Lips Like Ice, which is a, a Peggy Barnett backlist, I'm putting the whole book up. You're going to get to read the whole book for free. You just have to be patient because I'm only putting up 2000 words every three days. So to me, that's the point of a website. Anything else you put on the website is bonus. And I like a really transparent about page too, because I often, I often answer my, my writing emails, like my writing business stuff. I do it on my commute to my day job. So I have 23 minutes in the morning and 23 minutes in the evening to be business Jess. And if someone's like, oh, I'd like to host you for a podcast, or I'd like to, I'd like to have you do a guest post. Can you send me a bio? Can you send me headshots? Can you send me a press kit? The other important thing to have on a website, like this is the third most important thing, is a single landing page where you can say, sure, just go to jmfry.net backslash about, take whatever headshot shot you want. I save all the headshots with like by name of photographer, so there's no excuse to not know to, to not credit the photographer. Here's my short bio, here's 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 my hundred word bio, here's my three hundred word bio, here's my long bio, here's my press kit, here's my full bibliography, here's my full filmography. Whatever you need to pull for whatever it is that you need information about me for, just go there and pull it because I only have 23 minutes on my commute and I don't keep 600 versions of my headshots and 600 versions of my bio on my phone. Oh, I think it's really wise. And uh, so, okay, what uh, what do you find on the flip side if you, you look at an author's site or follow them on social media? What can make you kind of go, yeah, wrinkle your nose or unfollow? In terms of social media, only talking about their books. You are a whole human being and who you are as a person and how you interact with your fandom or your readership says a lot about you. So people who just are using their social media as like blasting, I don't care. If the first tweet that you put out about your book didn't make me buy your book, the 500th isn't going to make me buy your book. But if you say, oh, you know, I wrote this book about a parrot who solves murders, and then your feed is like 500 videos of your cute parrot bopping out to like whatever the big you know, Little Nas X hit is this week, I'm, I'm way more inclined to go buy your book because you know what parrots are like. You have a parrot. I, you know, and when I'm reading your detective parrot book, I'm going to imagine your, your parrot bopping out on your shoulder to like, call me by your name. That I, I think is very helpful. What else do I hate? Well, people who are just condescending to their readers, people who argue back with reviews, people who... Good reviews are not for writers. Shut up and walk away. Don't read the comments. It's, you know, like Goodreads has this great feature where you can filter by, does the review have text? Is it, how many stars does it have? I read five star reviews and that's all I read. And I only read them when I need an ego boost, when I feel bad about myself and I need an ego boost. There are probably constructive things that I can learn from reading one star reviews, but it's, gonna, it's not going to be anything that an editor worth their salt isn't also going to tell me. Uh, in terms of websites, anything that's like just super dated or cluttered, right? I need to go to your website. I need to know how to give you money, how to contact people. I need the about page and who you are. And then if you like run a blog series like I do, I want links to that blog series. I want to be able to easily navigate. How do I? And I mean, I that I stole from Robert J. Sawyer. When I was first starting out, I saw that on his website, he keeps an archive of every newspaper interview he's ever done, every radio he's 
interview he's ever done. Anytime he's done a guest post about like writing advice, he links it all in one clear list on one page. And I was like, excellent. That makes it really easy for me to look up who you are, what you know, if you've given advice about this one particular topic that I'm interested in. So yeah, it just, it just has to be, I mean, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Just uh, <laughs> make it easy to navigate, make it clean, make it professional. Yeah. Yeah. good. And actually, speaking of advice, um, I saw on your site that you sell a world building through culture downloadable guide. Yes. It says on the page, world building is more than maps, which as someone writing a sword and sorcery novel while studying a great many pre-1980 fantasy novels, I found baffling. Um, <laughs> well, maybe not. But uh, <laughs> So when I run this workshop, I actually call it culture building. But culture building okay. is kind of a, a weird keyword and it doesn't show up on Google the way you want it to. So I call it world building through culture. But what you're really doing is culture building. Okay, I like that. Now, we, of course, could easily spend the whole hour on that. It's a wonderful, rich subject. Maybe we should in the future. Uh, I would love to do that All with right. you. Um, but the reason I brought this up was to say that you, you generously give away a great deal of excellent writing advice on your site. I'm curious, how did you make the decision to package and sell your world building through culture knowledge as a PDF on top of offering it as a workshop? The reason is there was this thing called COVID-19 and um, a pandemic happened and there were all these lockdowns. And so I, I, give, I give away a lot of free advice. There's over 100 articles in my Words for Writers series on my website. And I'm writing more actually this weekend. And by far the most popular topic that I'm asked to speak at events is this culture building or this world building. And usually I'm given like an hour to, to try to jam through something that is that is like a full day workshop like if I could teach this workshop the way I really really wanted to it would like start at 10 a.m we would have lots to talk about because every slide of this presentation is like 600 bullet points and I'm only able to be like I'm only able to like touch on things and I can see in the audience people's eyes jumping open and their eyebrows bouncing and they're because they're they're going oh I didn't think about that oh I didn't think about that and I'm slamming them over and over again with oh I didn't think about that so instead of being able to take the time to be like oh I didn't think about that let's discuss it and I always found it disappointing that I had to just whip through you know what I think should be a five or six hour conversation with people in an hour maybe an hour and a half and then, yeah, and then the pandemic happened and what should have been like two hour workshops are suddenly truncated to 45 minutes online. And I had to just like be like, well, you guys are all getting copies of this downloaded. So I'm just going to, you know, move past this slide, move past this slide. You can read it yourself, move past this slide. And so many people said, thank God for, you know, this 60 some odd page PowerPoint presentation you gave us with 600 questions on each slide. And a couple of people said to me, you know, like I sat down with that PowerPoint presentation and a notebook and I filled the whole damn notebook answering the questions you're asking me about the cultures that I'm creating and it's made my world richer and it's made my characters richer. And I thought, well, I should share this. And at the time, because it was a pandemic, I was pretty broke and I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to share this thing that I usually get paid for at workshops, I should probably put it behind a paywall. I should probably, and I don't feel like I'm asking a lot of money. I think it's like, what, 20, 10 bucks. 10 bucks. Is that what I said? Yeah. Uh, if I'm, maybe I'm misquoting, but that's what I think I saw on the website. Yeah. Yeah. D don't hold him to that. I bet I think it, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's 10 bucks. And, and that's like, you know, 10 cents a minute for all the time I've ever worked on it. Yeah, that's like a wildly good deal. I, I hope nobody turns their nose up at that. I mean, <laughs> grief. Yeah, so <laughs> it was just like, well, I'm, I'm not making money. I'm not making the workshop presentation appearance fees that I should be making because of the pandemic. And I had, you know, 90% of my appearances canceled. So I'll, I'll put this out there because this is the most popular one, but I'll see if I can recoup a little bit. Mom's got to eat. Mom's got to keep herself in tea. Writers have to eat? What? I know. Uh, okay. <laughs> as, uh, so actually, that brings me to the next, next one here. Um, so as publishers, and correct me on this if I'm wrong, I mean, I'm just some armchair guy over here, but as publishers seem to be able to or willing to, uh, do less and less for writers. 
and self-publishing remains a lot of work if you want to put out something of quality. You know, you need I, a lot I, of money. People ask, yeah, when people ask me about self-publishing, I'll, I'll, you know, I've done it once, and I'll be honest, it was not the best experience. I won't get into it because this is your interview, but yeah, I don't know if I want to go back to it right away. It kind of felt like if you just change the tone of what people say to make something appealing online, when it's sort of like, oh, you can use the internet to do this thing, and it's like self-publishing, you can do everything, and it's like, yes, you just can change the tone a little. Self-publishing, you do everything. You must do everything. <laughs> Right. So because of this thing I'm, I'm describing here, it seems like there's a rising number of these let's help you self-pub companies cropping up. And I saw you mentioned on Twitter recently you are working with one uh, for Looks Like Ice, right? Uh, Ingram Spark, am I correct? Yeah. So yes and no. Ingram Spark is a printing house. They are not oh. a vanity press. So when you're, so there's different levels of self-publishing. I do the absolutely 100% DIY. I do everything, except I do one level above that where I actually pay a typesetter, I pay a cover designer, I pay an editor. Actually, I designed the cover for uh, Heroes of Four Letter Word myself, and I'm very proud of it, but it was a freaking agony. And I don't own InDesign, and I don't own Photoshop, and I don't know how to use any of those things. So it's worth the money to me to just pay someone else to do it correctly. It, it's worth it to me to pay somebody to typeset a book so it's nice, and it looks the way a book should look instead of fiddling for 600,000 hours in Word, which is frustrating in, in and of itself. I mean, so here's the thing with publishing. You're either going to spend money or you're going to spend time and energy, and you just have to decide how much of either you're willing to spend. There's no such thing as quick and easy self-publishing, period. It does not exist. So you can do it yourself, or you can hire other people to like create these files for you, and then you go and upload it to the printing house and either way you still have to do all the marketing you have to do literally everything else that comes with you know, populating it out to bookstores contacting chapters indigo to make sure it gets up on the site purchasing or requesting isbns making sure the book is in the library of congress making sure you have onyx so you can put it on booknet canada so libraries can find it like and then the marketing buying ads designing ads, talking about it on social media, arranging interviews, like you have to do that all yourself. So then the next level up is vanity press, vanity publishing, where there are companies that will, for X amount of money, we will typeset your book, give you a cover, help you find a blurb, guarantee one newspaper interview, and do 500 tweets. Now, some of these sites, some of these companies are legit. They're just people who want to help you. Some are raging scams. You have yep. to figure that out and you have to do your research. And I, I really recommend Victoria, is it Schwab? Um, Writer Beware on the CIFWA website. Please link that for everybody because it's a very, very important, very important blog. And it has saved my skin more than once. WriterBeware.org, I believe. And it's basically mm -hmm. this, this group of people who are volunteers who... Every time they hear about a scam or if they hear about a, uh, an agent operating in bad faith or he they hear about a publisher who is failing to pay royalties, they talk about it publicly. And it's a very searchable database. So you can be like, okay, I got a publishing offer from this small indie press. Am I going to get screwed? You can look it up. Well, it sounds like a great resource. It's a Thank wonderful resource. God bless the people who, who, who run it and fund it. So vanity presses, like if you are, if you have the money to just be like, go do it for me, if you can find a good one that delivers on what they promise, that that's a way to self-publish, but you have to give them money instead of time and energy. And you're still going to have to do time and energy and you're still going to have to do money elsewhere, but you can give them money. Actually, my great uncle published a book through a vanity press and it's, it's a beautiful little book. He published his memoirs about 10 years ago when he was in his mid eighties and now he's in his mid nineties and you know, the book is in a museum and it's in the local library. It's a great book. And then there's traditional publishing. So then that's where for a small press, you, you don't need an agent to submit to them. And they will basically, you don't have to pay them anything. They're going to pay for everything. But in return for them paying for everything, you only get 15% of the profit, which to me seems pretty fair. Like, oh, you're going to pay the typesetter. I mean, typesetting's between two and $5,000 for a novel. A really good cover is about the same price. So if you're going to put that out and I don't have to, sure, keep keep 80, what is it, 85%, I can't math, 85% of the profit because you put $10,000 into my book. 
Sure. Do you still find I, I when I was getting my my first book out, uh, my first book was with a, a proper publisher, but it was a smaller one, I suppose. Yeah. And maybe something about the cover just rubbed a reviewer wrong. But I remember a reviewer I sent the thing to to look at. They were like, is this a vanity press? I don't review those. And I, I is that still st- like a big stigma yeah. or did I just find an oddball? Do you um, think? I think it's less of a stigma than it was. But there there are a lot of people who review professionally now, like they've you know, like a social media influencer, they've become a professional bookstagrammer or whatever. And reviewing crap is a waste of everyone's time, right? Mm. And people do judge a book by its cover. Like Triptych was, Triptych won all of these awards, but Chapters refused to to stock it. And I finally managed to pin somebody down and I was like, listen, why aren't I on the local author's shelf? Why aren't I being invited to these things? It, it, it was named you know, one of the advocates' best overlooked books of the year. It was nominated against Robert J. Sawyer and Margaret Atwood for a CBC bookie. Like, what's going on here? And they were like, it's ugly. Sorry. The cover is ugly and we could never sell it. We would stock it and and it would be garbage because we would never sell it. And because you're with a small press, small presses do print on demand. So Ingram Spark, to go back to this question ingram spark is a print-on-demand company they're just the printer they have nothing else to do with the book world they just print books but ingram spark does not accept returns so the big five publishers own their own printing presses so penguin random house can print five thousand copies of a novel and send them all scattered to all these different bookstores and then after a year or two, if the books are still hanging around and nobody's buying them, those books are their their remains, right? The remains of the print run. So those books are remaindered. If books are remaindered, they go back to the printer and the printer either pulps them and recycles them and makes new books with them, or they send them out again to like Dollarama and Walmart and Costco and these places where they can sell the same book for like 10 bucks because they've already made their money on it, right? Print on demand does not accept remainders. You cannot return, bookstores cannot return remaindered or, or remains from a print run. So if if a bookstore buys 100 copies of my ugly as sin novel and they don't sell any of them, they are stuck with 100 copies. Unless I go in, which I have done, unless I go into that bookstore and I personally buy them so I can sell them at conventions and stuff. And unfortunately, authors have no say on their covers. And the piece of art that was on the cover of Triptych was a beautiful painting. It was a beautiful piece of art. It was very emotional. Um, it, It had this lovely expression front and center, but it depicts a scene that doesn't happen in the book. That never happened in the book. And I did not have a say on this cover. I did not get to veto it. I was asked my opinion. Do you like this or this? Here's three sketches. Which of these? And I was like, they're all, you're, they're, they all miss the point. They're, this is not the tone of, of the book at all. And the marketing department was like, we disagree. So we're going to do whatever we want. Yeah, that's rough. And that was part of the reason that after we had hit all the, um, it, when we basically hit everything that I needed to, to invoke the sunset clause with that publisher, it, things like, you know, like it won all of the, it was nominated for all these awards and it got all these praise, all this, uh, you know, online praise and stuff like that. None of that's on the cover. I was like, are you going to put, like, it was a, is a Lambda Literary Award nominee. That means something. That's like the Oscars of queer lit. Are you going to put the, pay to put the medallion on the cover? No. We don't have the money for them in the marketing budget. Okay, um, can we change the cover at least? Because, you know, Chapters doesn't want to cover it because they say it's ugly as sin. No. Okay. And it just got to the point where the book vanished out of the public conscious, consciousness, and I had low enough sales that I could invoke the sunset clause and get the book back. And then I just, I actually, the way I have the cover that I have now is I was going out for drinks with some web series friends and I was saying, oh God, now I have to design a whole new cover. And Rodney V. Smith and uh, Adrian Kress, who are both in the acting world, were like, we like to play with book covers. Tell us what you want. So I kind of told them what I wanted. And the next day, Rodney was like, like this? And I was like, yes, can I have that, please? And that's how the new cover happened. Wonderful. This is why you should have friends in the arts. Yeah, no. or at least friends with Photoshop. <laughs> Not the only reason. 
<laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad to I'm glad to hear that sort of happy ending there for the cover because I can see how deeply frustrating that oh, would be. Oh, it was so frustrating. And I mean the thing with small presses is again, I'm more than happy to like only take my 15% because they're putting all of their own money into it. But the minute somebody else is participating in creating the product, now there are other opinions. Now there are things that you're not in control of. Now there are different choices. And I'm not saying that the writer's idea of what the cover should look like is always the correct one. My original idea for the cover of The Untold Tale was, compared to the one we got, I was like, oh, I was so wrong. You were so right. This is so much better than what I originally pitched. Bravo. I'm not saying that the, the writer is always right, but the minute you start giving up control, you start giving up control. And the price you pay for other people's money making your book is that you no longer have veto. You, you no longer have all the power. But that's fine because I trust these people. This person is a professional cover designer. This person is a professional marketer. I am neither of those things. So I'm more than willing to be like, oh, okay, you think that the cover should be this and you're a professional cover designer who studies covers and looked at every fantasy book that's coming out this year? Great. I trust you. You're an expert. I am not. And I'm willing to pay that money or to, to not make that money so you can get paid as an expert. So... I, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I know you know you, you said about how you're using both Radish and Wattpad mm -hmm. uh, for you know serialized publishing platforms for those who aren't familiar for your novel Lips Like Ice. And I was intrigued to see uh, you know I think it's a day or two ago on Twitter you were saying how the book is getting a reprint uh, mm -hmm. this month as we're recording this is September uh, September first available new paperback and ebook editions. However, it will also continue to be free to read until the end of the year on Radish and Wattpad. Mm -hmm. How did you decide to use this particular model for this particular book and? You know, isn't giving away your writing bad? Yes and no. If this was a fresh, brand new book, I wouldn't do this. But the thing is, the book has been out for five years now. People who already knew that the book existed have already bought it or not. They're, they're either going to buy the book or not, and they bought it in 2016. So this was one of those cases where the book did okay at the beginning, and then it Big, you know, small press that doesn't have a massive marketing budget. They did the best they could. I did the best I could. We all worked very hard to get the book out there in the world, but there's only so much you can do when like, you know, my personal marketing budget is only like 200 bucks for every book. Like that's all I can spare um, if I want to pay my rent. So when uh, the company that it was, the publishing house that it was published with was sold to another publishing house, I was just like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not interested in waiting to see what a reprint is going to be or a re-release. I'm not, I just want all my backlist stuff under my own control before I sign with a new agent. I just want to know, I want all my ducks in a row. I want all my eggs in my basket. I want complete control of my backlist before I sign with a new agent. So yeah, I was just going around invoking sun. See, I sound so Machiavellian. I was going around invoking every sunset clause I could. But the ones that I make sense. Sensible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's no point in pulling back a product and then letting it collect dust. It makes sense to just put it put it straight back out. So I just had a friend typeset it for me. I hired a new cover designer to just put a nice new cover on it. There was some back and forth with Ingram Spark because I was having issues with the files, but Ingram Spark was phenomenal about there was help desk IT person who like sat me down with screen caps and explained everything where I was screwing up each time. They're really great. And uh, yeah, so the book is back out. And I decided... So as I said, I put excerpts of everything on Wattpad. And uh, I had been approached by Radish a couple of years ago, I guess early 2020, about a different book that I had. And so I had that book on Radish. I have other books on Wattpad. And then this book, I, I knew I could put on both for free. Okay, so it's not like you were looking to put a, like you wouldn't be, if you you wouldn't put your work in progress, like chapter oh, by chapter uh, on people Wattpad do that? that? People do do I that. I would mm. never be comfortable doing that because I could be writing something in chapter 20 and be like, oh, actually, no, if I'm going to do this, then I have to go back. So then I would go back and rewrite something in chapter two. My book's not done until it's done. I could never, ever 
ever. And I don't write in order is the other problem. I don't write chapter one and then chapter two. I write this scene in chapter three, and then I write the ending, and then I write the beginning, and then I change my mind about where the book begins, and then I write that big pivotal scene. I say that I write like laying a garden path. I know where I want it to start, I know where I want it to end, I know where all the big cool rocks are, and I place all the big cool rocks and I move them around and I play Jenga until I like the shape of the path and the pattern of the big cool rocks, and then I go in and I fill in the gravel. So I could never, I could never post a work in progress because it would never be in order. Would you also be concerned perhaps about then trying to sell it later? You know, when I was running this whole, you know, so I'm running a novel thing by you, we were talking a bit about Patreon yeah. and about how some people put like early drafts on there and the, stuff like that. The thing that. is, once something is published, it's published. So once it's out there, a publishing house can't make money on it because it's out there for free and people have already read it for free. And that's the reason that I, I'm serializing these books because it's, it's already out there. The book has been out for five years. I might as well give it away for free in the hopes of garner a new readership, in the hopes of people coming to it. So basically, I'm using Radish and Wattpad as free advertising. And, and I made the very strategic, very deliberate choice to release the paperback and the ebook right at the most frustrating part of the book. So it's it's right at that part where you're like, oh, I just want the next chapter to drop now. And I'm like, well, the next chapter is not going to drop until Sunday. Or you could just go buy the book and read the whole thing this weekend. And more, there's more than one comment on Radish where people were like, oh my God, she's released the book. I I'm just going to go to Kindle. Screw this. I'm not waiting anymore. I'm just going to go to Kindle and buy it. And I was like, yep, yeah, that's the point. That's I did that. I did that deliberately. That was a choice I made. I like it. I like it a lot. And you know what it shows, which is I think anybody listening to this uh, would have probably already reached this conclusion, is that by God, do you have hustle. <laughs> but, I got nothing but hustle. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, as we chatted a little bit about before we got going here, you know, the seed, uh, original seed of my wanting to do this interview with you was a chat we had uh, months back in the spring when I was talking about my Patreon mm -hmm. you know, podcast idea about the hustle, capital T, capital H. And at times frankly, being kind of exhausted, kind of, kind of tired of how much more is asked of authors beyond the actual writing. Now, I know decades ago when things were completely different, you could still find an author saying, I don't want to do a book tour. I just want to sit at home and write and not talk to any humans. And like, OK, there's that. But I think that's very different from what we have now with, you know, that Internet thing and everything that comes out of it. And yet still, author exhaustion and author pay are two subjects I suspect way too few people outside of the publishing universe are terribly familiar with, even in this late-stage capitalist thing we're all enjoying. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a big, broad-ass question and a chance to gripe. What are your thoughts on what we can do about this beyond all of us rattling our cups and saying, please buy our books, please go to our Patreon? So first off, I would suggest going and listening to the Print Run podcast because uh, Laura and no, I can't think of her her agenting partner's name. They they're very candid in both their podcast and their Twitter feeds. They talk about author burnout and agent burnout a lot. And they're very, I mean, just go to Twitter. There's a lot of agents who are very, who are starting to be very candid about the demands that are being put on agents and authors from publishers that seem unreasonable. And so uh, let me explain to you what an advance is. A lot of people think an advance is just a gift of money. It's not the lottery. An advance is an advance on royalties. So it's like getting your paycheck for the full year from your boss in January, but you still have to go in and do your 40 hours a week for the next 51 weeks. An advance is like, yeah, okay, it's a six-figure advance. Let's say it's $100,000. Let's say it's $500,000. Once upon a time, oh, sorry, so it's an advance on royalties, and you make zero dollars until that advance is earned out. So someone like Stephen King probably earns out his in advance in the first like five seconds that his book is available. Someone like me, I, I once got a $200 advance on a book and it never earned out. So I never made money on that book outside of that $200 because not enough copies of that book sold for the company to make back that $200 they gave me. I know people who have never earned out advances, award-winning authors who have never earned out their advance. The goal is to hopefully earn out your advance so then you start making royalty checks. Once upon a time, advances were given on signing. Yeah, I've signed with the publishing house. They're 
they're going to give me, they like this book. Um, they're going to give me a hundred thousand dollars so I can quit my job or I can take a hiatus from my job and I can stay at home and I can just do everything they want me to do. I can just work for the publishing house for that six months or that year that it takes for us to do the edits, restructure the book, be available for the marketing meetings, be available for whatever they need me. Like, you know, if there's a dramatic adaptation coming down the line to, to to be able to weigh in on that, to be present for those meetings. Everything that the publishing house needs of me, I can be available for. And that advance helps me take a hiatus from work or, you know, put myself in a better financial situation. And that's why they talk a lot about the disparity in advances between aloe white cis heteros sexual men versus queer people or people of color or marginalized voices because the kinds of advances that one group gets and the kinds of advances another group gets affects how present and how relaxed and how much an author can concentrate on the work. Because if a white man made $300,000 for an advance and a black man made $300 for an advance, but they're both expected to do the same amount of work, who's struggling more? Who's gonna have, you know? So that's why there's a lot of conversation about the disparity in advances between different marginalized groups. Now, and then and then the advance got split and it was like, okay, you get half on signing and then you get half when you deliver the final book. And then it got split into three and it was like signing, delivery, release date. And suddenly $100,000 split across two years is not enough to do anything. I can't quit my job. I can't take a hiatus. The most I could do is maybe take like one or two weeks unpaid leave. But then what kind of a job am I coming back to? Maybe they'll just fire me. Like, and, and, and then pre-pandemic advances have started to be split into four. That's insane. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah, I saw mention of fourths and fifths. Uh, How am I supposed to do? And then on top of that, with social media, if you're not a big name, they're not assigning someone to do your social media for you. They're not assigning someone to take care of things for you. And increasingly, publishers are saying, we're not going to spend a huge marketing budget to like put the book on end caps and to put the book in the New York Times and to get it reviewed. Because submitting to major review presses costs money. It, submit books to awards costs money. People don't realize this. Like, You want to submit a book to an award? You have to, first off, pay an admin fee. And now that makes sense because they have to pay the people who work for them. So I don't mind paying an admin fee for a legitimate award, 45 bucks or whatever, just to make sure that whoever's opening the envelopes gets paid their rate wage. Cool. I'm fine with that. But then they're saying like, okay, to even enter, you have to send us 10 copies of the book. I don't have $1,000 to buy 10 copies of the book from my publisher and then mail it. My small indie publisher, whose marketing budget for my book was a total of $300, cannot afford to give that many books away for free. And then if I get longlisted, I have to send the competition another 25 books. And then if I get shortlisted, I have to send the competition another 25 books for all their judges. And it's just like, I, I would really like to see the Ontario Arts Council or the Canadian Arts Council create a grant specifically for small press authors to be able to afford to send copies of their books to awards because we're going to keep seeing awards in Canada going to the same group of people until those who are marginalized can afford to submit to the award. There's my little rant. But having an advanced split in fours means that I can't focus on the book that I want to. And I can't take the time with the book. So I'm not providing the best product I could. And then on top of that, publishers are asking me to take on the burden of more and more and more marketing. Meanwhile, Penguin Random House has posted record profits from the pandemic and their editors are up on Twitter going, cool, can we get some bonuses? Can I get my regular pre-pandemic rate of payback, please? Can I... And I'm not saying like, ooh, greedy executives. I'm just saying publishing houses wouldn't exist if authors didn't write books. So help me write my book. Pay me what I'm worth. Yeah, it's funny when you run into people who, uh, who still who are like, well, isn't it just a privilege to write or whatever? No, it's a and job. I'm like, think about whatever you do. Yeah, it's a job. And think about, I always want to say to, to someone who comes out with that or, or even sort of mumble something adjacent <laughs> to that. I want to say, think about your job. Think about trying to do your job. Think about trying to do your job when you don't know how you're going to pay your rent, even though you're working your job you yeah. know like, has, like just how does worrying about money uh help <laughs> it doesn't obviously it's like yeah, a, yeah. yeah. and it's it's and, and people think oh well you know you put out your book 
I mean, this is, you know, I've got a big family, right? I've got a big family. I go to a family reunion. It's, you know, between 60 and 200 people every year. Oh, wow, Jess, you put out a new book. That's great. You must be making millions. And I'm like, did you buy a copy? No, then I'm not making millions. People have to spend the money for me to make the money. And I'm not saying you have to bully your friends and family into buying your book, but the least they can do is shell out 20 bucks so you can make two. Yeah, I mean, I... I... <sighs> Having published and self-published with 11 books on, on my brag shelf, if I were to put together every cent I ever made on just the books, not the speaking engagements and the conventions and stuff, just on royalties and advances, I could maybe pay two or three months rent. That's it. That's all I've ever made. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and it's just it's maddening when I you know see the breadth and quality of your work. You know, we 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 know capitalism is not a meritocracy, yeah. and there's a lot of problems, and that's a whole other podcast. The the thing is, if I had the money to spend on advertising, if I could afford to advertise yeah, my book expensive. on the TTC, I'd sell more books. If I could afford to advertise my book in the New York Times, I'd sell more books. If I could afford to submit my books to you know the Gillers, I would sell more books. But you need money to make money. Yeah, and it just, I remember, uh, the last thing I'll mention on this is from this conversation we had, and don't worry, I have a very positive thing coming up next, folks, uh, was, we don't, I can cut this out if you're not comfortable with it, but I, I, you mentioned a publisher you worked with straight up said to you, you should start a Patreon. And I just want to, again, encourage all listeners with non-arts jobs to imagine your boss turning around to you and saying, you know what, I think you should start a fundraiser because... I can't pay you what It's you like need. the Walmart and wherever it was in the States that like had a, a donation basket for help our employees have a nice Thanksgiving. Like go buy two turkeys and give one to our employees. It's like, no, no, no. Why should your customers buy two turkeys? You should be paying these people enough that they can afford to buy a turkey. Yeah, or to keep picking on Walmart, which lets, uh, if I remember, remember correctly, Walmart, when you sign up for a job in the States with Walmart, uh, part of the paperwork is simultaneously signing up for benefits. So they just, they're saying, we can't pay you enough to live but we're gonna pay you like more than if you were just on benefits but you also need benefits because the waltons need more gold yeah. yachts or whatever it's absurd it's absurd but anyway walmart sucks we all know that but but it's just this feeling right of, of like i can't you yeah. know and oh dear and and and, yeah. and that's where a lot of that pit of grief 2019 i can never write living in the base mm -hmm. the bottom of a dry well for a year has come from because I'm just, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I hustle constantly and I have a day job and I have the voice acting. And by the time I get up in the morning, I do everything I need to do to go to my day job. I go on the commute. So I take care of my business emails on the commute. I get to work. I work all day. And, um, you know, I, I, I really love my colleagues and I love my job and I love what I do, but I can get abused sometimes. I mean, that's customer service. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then I come home and I do all the business emails on the way home and I tweet my strategic tweet and I put out that strategic picture of the book that I just released that I've spent all weekend doing a photo shoot for and I get home and I eat dinner I don't want to sit down and write I'm exhausted I my brain is soup I don't want to sit down and create a new book but if I don't sit down and create a new book I don't get paid yeah, part of why I work by it with papers as much as I can is because to stare at a screen all day for a job and then have to try and stare at a screen to mm -hmm. write is mm -hmm. so hard you know, my dream is, is I don't even want to be a full-time writer. I'd be happy being a part-time writer. If I made enough money that I could do a part-time day job, if I could go back to extra work, I really enjoyed being a film extra. If I could just go back to extra work and write in the spaces between auditions and voice acting gigs and, and all of that, I, I would be really pleased. But, you know, and, and, and then there's always that question of, I have one hour this evening where I have energy. Do I spend that one hour writing a chapter or do I spend that one hour on Instagram advertising? Or cleaning the dust bunnies out of that corner yeah, of the apartment. Yeah. Like, my apartment would be cleaner if I didn't write. <laughs> oh, see, my apartment's so clean because I write. But I'm definitely one oh. of those people who's like, I don't know what has to happen next and i use a lot of acting while i'm writing so if i am having trouble with a character or if i'm having trouble with a moment i get up and i like go do improv ex exercises so i'll vacuum while i'm having a, a an out loud conversation with my characters or i will go do the dishes as my alien from looks like ice would do dishes like i go and do acting exercises while i'm tidying to try to get over a hump Oh, I love it. Um, okay, so let's pull out of this, uh, I think, very valuable, uh, but nonetheless uh, grimy bitch uh, that I steered us into. But I think it's people, more people need to hear about yeah. this stuff, uh, you know, and 
hopefully there'll be change along on the horizon. Yeah, we'll see how but that it's goes. not. Um, it's everyone has this sort of idea that you just write this novel and it comes out of you perfectly, and then somebody loves mm-hmm. it and they change nothing, and then it's released into the world and it makes a hundred million dollars. Yeah, we're all Christopher Plummer in Knives oh, Out. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> I, I hated him a little bit. <laughs> but I did like watching writers in films. I'm like, oh, because yeah, okay. There's that whole sitting there and being like, I have to choose the right word. Is this the right word? I'm going to spend an hour flipping through a dictionary. But I find what a lot of writing is, is writing a bunch of stuff and then going, Ugh, none of that works. Delete, try again. Or you get to the end of the book and you're like, so there's that Neil Gaiman quote in the first draft, write everything that happens. In the second draft, go back and make it look like you knew what you were doing all along. It's a lot of stuff like getting to the end of the manuscript and being like, okay, cool. Now I have to go back and seed in all that foreshadowing. So that takes a week to go in and check every chapter and make sure all that foreshadowing is correct. And then being like, oh, okay, but I changed this character. I don't want him to be so aggressive. I need him to be a little more sensitive. So then you go in and you change all of that again. And it's 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 really difficult because you have to keep an entire world and an entire story in your head for years. And then you have to make sure it's all internally consistent. And that's why even the greatest writer needs an editor because who knows when an editor reads it for the 400th time and goes, wait a minute, wasn't the car red? Isn't the whole point of the whole novel that the car's red? And in this scene, it's purple. You're like, yeah. Yeah, and as a reader, you can always kind of tell when like a particularly big author uh, reaches the point where editors are reluctant to say no to them. D- yeah, we've all been there, yeah. I think. So I need to go in detail. The Goblet of Fire, you mean? Uh, yeah. No comment. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay. So then let's let's let's, let's tie this uh, a bow on this with something a little more sure. positive, which is uh, you know as you, as you've mentioned, you started writing in fan fiction. And one thing that I loved when I was investigating your site was, uh, well, I just, you know, you have a section for the fan art and other creations done of your work. And like, how charming was that when you oh started to God, get it? Oh my God, I loved um, it. Could you, could you, if you remember, what, what was it like when you very first got uh, a piece of fan art or fan writing? So or the very first piece of art I ever got was from my former roommate. Um, his name is Chris Winkler. He actually ended up... Uh, um, illustrating the map on the flyleaf of my fantasy series. He's a wonderful artist. And when we were living together, he did like a comic in the university newspaper. And he he would make all these little figurines for his friend's D&D campaign that happened at our house. And, you know, we stayed in touch after I left university. And he, he, he has a career now in illustration. I'm very proud of him. Um, but one of the things I did with Triptych when I first wrote it is that I shared it very widely. Gave it to this cousin, gave it to this friend, gave it to my mom, gave it to this friend, gave it to this person, gave it to this person, and got as much feedback back on the book as I can because it was, you know, my first real novel. The novel that I wrote when I was living in, um, when I was in university is buried underneath a tree and it will never, you know, everybody, you write your practice novel and then you, yeah. has got one. <laughs> so Triptych was like the first novel that I wanted to try to sell. And um, originally in the book, the UFO crashes into a strawberry patch. And I had talked about the vividness of the red berries splattered against the, you know, the, the otherworldly metallic sheen of the UFO and all of this. Until my mother, who grew up on a farm, rightly pointed out that it's the wrong season for strawberries in my book. It's raspberries. It's raspberry season. And I didn't want to put the UFO in the raspberry canes because it then it would be prickly and hard for the characters to get at. So in the version of the book that everybody had read before it came out, it was strawberries. And I have said publicly many times that the very first line that really came to me, the very first line that I really wrote down for this book was, there's a UFO in my strawberries. And then it ended up being raspberries. So as, as a kind of way of razzing me, Chris presented me with a piece of art at the the book launch of a giant strawberry with a tiny UFO smashed into the side of it (laughs) and a little farmhouse on the top, but he titled it Raspberries. And that was the first piece of art. And it's actually on my wall. Um, None of you can see this because this is a podcast, but it's in on my wall in my dining room. And the wall in my dining room is actually a gallery. Every time I commission or receive a piece of art as a gift, I get it professionally printed and framed. And I put it up on my wall. And my my wall's pretty full. And I'm pretty proud that what I have written has inspired people 
to create art. I mean, that's what I love about fan fiction is it's not passive consumption mm. and it's not collective consumption. It's it's not just buying the the action figures and wearing the jerseys. It's productive consumption. It's you love something so much that it bursts out of you as art, as cosplay, as filk, as songs, as poetry, as comics, as prose. And I think there's just something so beautiful about productive consumption. Yeah, no, I agree. I uh, There's a lot to be inspired by looking across uh, your website and your career. And I must confess, I, I deeply fantasize about the first time I'll get fan fiction or fan art or anything, if assuming I will. The, the, f the first fan fiction was the one that I was like, ah. Um, <laughs> and because I had already published the book and I had no plans on writing a sequel, I read it. There was some stuff that was done for a series that I was in the middle of. And I was like, I can't read this. I can't touch this. I can't mm. go anywhere near this fan fiction for legal reasons, just in case I'm accidentally inspired or it seems as if I'm inspired, even though I never read it. But yeah, as soon as I published the last book, I was like, okay, now I'm going to go read that fan fiction. Awesome. Okay, so we've gone over time, but I was happy to do it. Obviously, we'll have to have you back at some point in the future uh, to deep dive on some other stuff. I would love to do that. Um, so this is where we're tying off here. Please. Oh, my cat sneezed. That's a recording, <laughs> great. Uh, please tell the listeners, uh, we, we have a little bit, but just in the, in the brief, you know, ratatat, uh, plug your stuff. What have you got going on? And other than jmfry, F-R-E-Y dot net, uh, you know, where should they look for you online? Uh, they can find me at uh, Twitter and Instagram. So Instagram, it's at j.m.frey. Twitter is scifry, S-C-I-F-R-E-Y. Yes, I, I chose that as my username to try to trick people into saying my surname correctly. It's always funny when people are like, Cyfrey, and I'm like, no, Cyfry. It's a joke. Say my name right, and you'll get it. But it, my last name is 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 incorrect um, because of family reasons. We actually changed the pronunciation of our surname to separate from a different branch of our family. So I am the one in the wrong, and I'm aware of it. Uh, you can find me at every basically every major bookstore: Amazon, Kindle, Kobo, Nook, Barnes and Noble, Book Depository. You can find me a lot in your local library. If I am not there, here is here is my my plea to you. If you want to read one of my books but you cannot afford to buy it, please, please, please go to the website of your local library and request they buy the book. Because not only is that serving you, it's serving anybody else who would like to read that book, and it's serving the library because libraries have purchasing budgets. And if they don't use that whole purchasing budget in a year, it gets slashed for the next year. Please help them spend their money. They're happy to spend the money. And I make, I actually do get paid from books that are in libraries by the Public Lending Right Fund here in Canada. Yeah, a lot of people think, oh, I don't know if I should get the book out from the library. I'm not being good to the author. Like, you're being good to the author. Don't worry. I make more money if my book is in the library than if you buy it from the bookstore. Well, you heard it there. All right. So piles of wonderful wisdom uh, from, from Jess. Uh, and thank you so much for being on. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I'm going to hold you to bringing me back. Totally going to happen. I'm going to need lots of interviews when I'm at a point in my project where it's hard to talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> Fair. That sounds terrible. I'm going to need filler. Can you? Anyway, I'll cut that out. I'll, I'll, come, I'll, I'll come be your filler. That's fine. Thank you. All right. See you later, Jess. <laughs> see ya. Thanks, Oliver. So I'm Writing a Novel features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine, just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, that's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on iTunes, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, John Carrad Lefford. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon.